Hello and welcome to another LawPod episode. My name's Anushka Sayed and today we're going to be talking about recently the things that have been happening in Hong Kong and whether Hong Kong could turn into another Belfast. So today we're joined by a very special guest, Professor Bryce Dixon. So if you could give us an introduction as to who you are and what you do, that'd be great. Hi Anushka, yes, I'm... um a retired uh, professor of international and comparative law at yes. Queen's University in Belfast. Mm-hmm. Been working here um, most of my life, although I've had stints at Leicester University mm-hmm. in England, at Ulster University, mm-hmm. and I was the Chief Commissioner of the Human Rights Commission here in Northern Ireland after it was set up in the wake of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Wow, I'm really excited to have you here. So jumping straight into what's happening, if you could give me a really brief overview and the bare facts version of what's occurring in Hong Kong at the moment. Um, A lot of listeners might be seeing it on the news, but how would you explain the current social angst to someone who has no idea what's going on? Well, I'm an outsider, obviously, so my perspective may be slightly inaccurate or... or, um, based on BBC recordings, etc. <laughs> but my perception of the situation is that trouble flared uh, recently, I think in June or so of this year, when the Hong Kong legislature suggested or attempted to put through a bill that would allow the extradition from Hong Kong to mainland China of people suspected of serious crimes. And there was a great deal of opposition to that idea. Can I ask why? Because, obviously, the People's Republic of China is a very authoritarian regime. They don't approve of free speech or of free elections. And the the worry on the part of Hong Kongers was that if people were extradited there to China, um, they wouldn't receive a fair trial and might be sentenced to, to very disproportionate punishments. So that's where the troubles really started? That's where the troubles started. There were protests on the streets, very peaceful protests, large numbers of people, hundreds of thousands of people at times protesting silently on the streets, or not so silently sometimes, so very dignified. Um, The government of Hong Kong um, decided to suspend the extradition bill for a while, which didn't satisfy the protesters who were pushing for its complete um, repeal or withdrawal. They have since achieved that. The, the, the government and the chief executive of the Hong Kong government, uh, Carrie Lam, have conceded that point. So they've, they've withdrawn the extradition bill. But the protests have continued and have become more violent. And the, the protesters are now not just protesting against the extradition bill because they've achieved that withdrawal. They're protesting in favour of more democracy in Hong Kong. Now, you talk about them getting more violent. we That's really what's um, televised and on the media all the time, all of the protests and police brutality. And you're set to actually deliver the Livingstone Lecture this year. And one of the points that we really wanted to delve into um, is China's use of facial recognition and the violent tactics which breach human rights of citizens. And if you could briefly tell us about your Livingstone Lecture. The Stephen Livingstone Lecture, which I'm giving later in November, is really about how we conceive of human rights. What are they for in society? Because I think that's a fundamental question. Once you've got a consensus on what human rights are for, what purpose they're meant to serve, then you can work out exactly which human rights you you want to guarantee and to what extent, in, in what circumstances, you want to guarantee them. Because nearly every human right has to be limited in some way or other. 
and the trick is is knowing exactly where to place the limitations. So I'm going to be using a few examples from around the world, including Ireland, North and South, possibly China um, and Hong Kong, to illustrate the, the importance of knowing where to uh, draw the line between what's a um, permissible form of conduct on the part of a government and what's an impermissible form of um, action on the part of the government right. in human rights terms. How are we meant to deal with the human rights that are being breached in China um, when we do live in this modern society, and how can we move forward with that? Well, you know, China presents a huge problem, really, for human rights advocates because it is definitely an authoritarian regime. It locks people up for no good reason. It um, denies people the right to form political parties and to free speech. And yet it is a marvellous economic success and millions of people have been taken out of poverty in recent years through the policies of the Chinese government. Human rights advocates, and I include myself in that category, would put free speech and freedom in general above increasing prosperity. Obviously we want people to be taken out of poverty, mm. but not at the expense of their right to free speech and to form political parties, because... History has shown us, I think, not conclusively perhaps, but to date at least, that the, the best form of government, not the perfect form of government, is democratic government. I just want to retouch on the free speech um, aspect that you were talking about, because I think that's really important. Um, it, reading several articles about this recently, and they were saying how Hong Kong journalists, they're, they're at risk now as well. Um, and I was just wondering, is there a risk that our side of the world is going to get blocked out? Yes, that is a definite risk, I think. And we've seen in mainland China itself yes. that a lot of the um, alleged human rights abuses that are going on at the moment are being hidden because the authorities are denying access to uh, Chinese and foreign journalists who want to explore the issues. And that may well happen in Hong Kong. But Hong Kong still remains a semi-autonomous region within yes. China. It has its own government, although it has limited powers. The worry is that if the government in Hong Kong is not able to cope with the disturbances that are happening at the moment, then the Chinese government may in some way interfere with the Hong Kong government, take over the Hong Kong government perhaps, and make, make Hong Kong more a part of um, mainland China than it is today. There is a risk of it occurring, yes, and this is where I think the protesters need to be a bit cautious in the way they're proceeding. Right. It is very unfortunate, I think, that the protests have descended into violence in the way that they have, because that, I think, is counterproductive. There are many people in the West who would be very supportive in principle of Hong Kongers having democracy, but not supportive of the use of, of widespread violence and destruction of property. And I, I see a pro-Beijing politician in, in Hong Kong has been stabbed, allegedly, by somebody who's a protester or a pro-democracy campaigner. That's very worrying, and that's going to turn that kind of violence, I think, will turn Westerners against the protesters and therefore make it more difficult for them to achieve their, their aims. So you said the protesters should be more cautious, so you think if they were, then maybe the West would be more supportive of it, even more uh, so? Yes, I mean, I think the West is largely supportive I at the agree. moment. And the, the silent protests that we saw in the early days of, of these um, these protests, the huge numbers in the streets, the dignified way in which people were protesting with their umbrellas, you know, with their their uh, black clothing, um, all of that was very um, visually effective. Yes. 
But the moment it descends into destruction of property, throwing missiles at the police, um, or worse than that, then people rightly, I think, say, well, I'm not so sure I do support those protesters after all. So what is the justification for the police from their point of view, if you know? And do you think they're taking their power too far? I've seen on television uh, pictures of what appear to me to be um, police brutality, yes. uh, overreaction to uh, the, 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 the problems they are facing. Having said that, I mean, I, I know from, from experiences in Northern Ireland that the, the security forces can often be put under extreme pressure and put in severe danger. Their own lives may be in danger, yes. uh, not to mention the lives of other people and the property of other people. So the, the police have a duty to protect people, to protect property. Now, the moment they become on the offensive and start targeting protesters, shooting at them, not with real bullets, I hope, although I know that's happened once or twice so far, but with tear gas or other uh, projectiles, uh, plastic bullets that we've had in in Northern Ireland. Yes. Um, I mean, all of that can lead to very serious uh, harm to the protesters. Um, But to an extent the security forces are justified in meeting force with force if they are basically defending themselves or other people. They, they seem to have gone over the top on many occasions. Um, but to be perfectly honest with you, I've been a little bit surprised that they have been relatively um, well-behaved. So you would disagree with the statements that have been coming out saying that they're taking power too far? No, I wouldn't disagree with that because I think there have been numerous incidents yes. of police brutality. Um, But there have been lots of other incidents where the police have reacted, I think, responsibly. And they need to do that more consistently across the board. So on the topic of um, facial recognition being used um, in China and Hong Kong, what's if you could explain that and also talk about what your opinions on that being used is. Yes, this is a really difficult issue. Technology now permits um, uh, video recordings of of faces to be scanned very quickly so that people can be identified almost instantaneously, given the databases that that, um, authorities have. Um, It isn't widely used at the moment, this this technology, because it is not yet totally reliable and lots of people can be misidentified and perhaps arrested on the basis of what the technology is saying, but they're completely innocent people. So, you know, in principle, I have no objections to facial recognition if it works accurately. Um, on the other hand, uh, at the moment, the technology doesn't doesn't uh, permit that, as far as I know. So I'm against its use uh, at the moment. If the, you could explain how it is being used at the moment, as far as I know, it's being used by the police in Hong Kong to 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 photograph or film uh, lots of people, and they then quickly scan those images to see if they can identify people. That's that's a, one of the reasons why they passed a law in Hong Kong to ban the wearing of face masks because obviously the face mask would make it more difficult for the cameras to identify people accurately. Now, one of the um, main talking points that I wanted to bring up today was an article that I read um, by Yale University, and it drew connections, social ones, political ones, but especially social ones, between what's happening now in Hong Kong and China and what occurred during the Troubles in Northern Ireland in the past. So what would your take on that be? I think... It's too early to say, really, whether there's a direct comparison. It's a bit of a stretch at the moment to say that what's happening in Hong Kong is a reflection of what happened in, in Belfast yes. you know, 40-odd years ago. Um, the troubles here began uh, relatively 
peacefully in the sense that there were protests on the streets. Um, I, although alongside that there was there were isolated incidents of violence, especially by by loyalist paramilitaries against members of the Catholic population. But it was only after two or three years that the the paramilitaries on both sides, the loyalist that is pro-British side and the uh, the Republican, i.e. pro-Irish side, began to take over the, the conflict and bring in serious weaponry and explosives and really make the whole of Northern Ireland a very, very unsafe place for everybody to live in. Now, Hong Kong hasn't got to that stage yet. Do you think there's a risk of paramilitary groups and rebellion groups starting up in Hong Kong that have quite extremist views? I imagine there will be those protesters who wouldn't like to identify themselves with that violence. So it's possible that there could be breakaway groups, extremist groups, who think that they are more likely to achieve democracy through the use of violence. So hypothetically, just one of our final questions, if you were called upon, what advice would you give to contain or overcome the problems? Well, as in all conflict situations, the key is to get people talking, yes, discussing and, if necessary, compromising. In any such talks, nobody can get everything they want, but they should all, I hope, want that nobody dies, that, that nobody is injured, that there's not serious property damage. And if those are the basics, then there should be uh, a foundation for people on, on all sides to get together and discuss what sensible reforms can be brought in that satisfy all parties. And I would, I would suggest that the Chinese government would be up for that. It doesn't want Hong Kong to become a, a Northern Ireland-type situation. Of course not, no. um, And it's in their own interest, therefore, to, to accommodate reform if they, if they possibly can, as long as the demands are not... Uh, excessive. So our questions. It's been such an honour to have um, you here. Is there anything else that you wanted to add just for the listeners to listen to if they wanted to know more about Hong Kong or any talking points that you wanted to bring up? Nothing in particular, Anushka. I think uh, what you're doing is, is very worthwhile. I would urge listeners to listen to other podcasts in the series. Absolutely. And, of course, to explore for themselves what, what the, the issues are at stake in Hong Kong. It's a, it's a big problem at the moment. The protesters call it fire magic. The authorities call it terrorism. But who would have thought just a few months ago? So uh, we are actually joined today by some students who are from Hong Kong, who are attending Queen's University here in Belfast. Um, so everybody just say hi. 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 Hello. <laughs> So uh, they've very kindly given up their time to us um, to just have a little roundtable discussion about uh, what's going on in Hong Kong and uh, things that are happening and media portrayal. What are some sort of misconceptions that people who aren't from Hong Kong might have had about you or might you get asked a lot? The biggest misconception that people have about me is that if I say I'm from Hong Kong, they'll just be like, oh, you're from China then, but... It's it's not that I'm offended by it, but it's just that that's not where I identify from. I am from Hong Kong. I have my Hong Kong passport ID. We have a completely different system. That's just how it is. So I'm sorry to say this, but I've never felt like I was from China. I am from Hong Kong. 
I don't know if that's the same for I you. I have the same feeling as well. Mm. Personally, would see myself as Chinese, but I don't see myself as China Chinese. I see myself as Hong Kong Chinese. Kind of like how maybe an immigrant who goes to America would say, like, I am Chin- American Chinese or that sort. So it's almost like a like a dual identity for you? like a Kind of. Kind of a dual identity. Or like an aspect of your identity? Yes, definitely. I, It is definitely an aspect of my identity to say like I am a Hong Konger I'm not from China so when I come over here and people get confused and they say like no 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 you're from China I'm like okay well can you please you know learn or empathize about our situation a bit because based on our history and stuff we have reason to not feel that way uh, the reason why we're here, just moving on to the protests, um, obviously there is a complex historical background to the conflict that's going on in Hong Kong. Was it something out of the blue for you guys or is it something that you maybe could have seen happening, like growing up, were there any sort of tensions or anything? I guess I kind of expected it because like a few years ago there was the Umbrella movement, but um, the thing is I just didn't well, I didn't expect like such a large, large-scale movement to, to um, to happen like in such short time. But there's always been like conflicts or like tension between like mainlanders and Hong Kong people. How mainlanders come down to Hong Kong to have their babies born here to receive like the Hong Kong education or like um, social services, but then um, because like our culture is really different and. You know, conflicts have been going on, so it's not that like big of a revelation or anything. Because of the umbrella movement, I didn't see... I mean, I figured it would come back, but not in this way or to this extent. And like you were asking about growing up with it, um, yeah, I mean, I was born in 1998, and... The handover was in 1997, so basically my, the entirety of my life, there has been protests in Hong Kong. And growing up, my parents would take me to protests and they would explain very well why we had to protest. What was it all for? Universal suffrage was mainly the case of most of them. It wasn't a shock, but it is a shock of how far it's gotten and why, and the fact that it sounds bad to say because I don't have faith in our government and in our police anymore. But some part of me back then must have still had some faith because I would have fought maybe back then if somebody told me this was happening. I would have fought, you know, why haven't they resolved anything about it? Why have they not, you know, open discussion about it? But like it was sort of disappointing to you like when it started happening? Absolutely. I'm sure everybody was disappointed because the fastest way for you to resolve all this is to open discussion about it, is is to talk about it. But the thing is, after... Carrie Lam um, announced the extradition bill. We had a one million people protest on, I think it was June 9th? Yeah, yeah June, yep, 9th. June 9th. And right after that, she said that it was dead. And I'm sure you guys all remember this. It, when she meant dead, she didn't meant, mean that it was withdrawn. She meant that it was placed back on a shelf and therefore could be taken down at any moment. And because of that, there came the two million protest. So two million people went onto the streets to say like, oh, you know, we don't want, you need to start representing us. We don't want the extradition bill. You need to protect our legal and judicial system. Um, So 
That's why when people say that it's too late, when she finally withdrew her extra, uh, withdrew the extradition bill in September, I believe. Yes, yeah, September. Yep. In September, September, when she finally withdrew the extradition bill, it was too late because now we have five demands from the protesters, of course, but they could have just. It could have just been one demand, which was the extradition bill. If she had just listened to the one million people that were willing to go out onto the street. So obviously, you've you've been very exp- your feelings on it. But uh, can you talk about what you feel when you watch the coverage from here, uh, or when you read the news? Mm, a few days ago, like when I woke up, I saw the news of um, an unarmed guy um, who was shot by the police, and then. Um, it was interesting that the reporter started like crying because like he was so sympathetic about it, and then I started tearing up as well. So, oh. yeah, it felt really sad because like we're on the other side of the globe, and there's not as much as we can do like compared to if, if we were to be in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I would have to agree with that. Um, sometimes when you see Western media over here, you think that oh they're so sympathetic, which is true in most of the cases. But there's also a lot of cases where they aren't or they just see it as, you know, there's no hope to this. And I guess the biggest reason they must feel that way is because they've never had to try to fight for their freedom before. They've never had to try to fight for human rights because, you know, here in the West, normally you would already have or like somewhat have universal suffrage. But so, for example, I think it was that... The Economist uh, recently wrote a piece and they basically said that main, uh, mainland Chinese are being attacked in Hong Kong. Like That was just the headline. And of course, most people only see the headline. So this was part of slandering us and suggesting that we are racist towards mainland Chinese, even though we aren't. It's just that you shouldn't use your political belief as a retaliation to ours, you know, out in the street or something. You could, I don't mind if you express it, but you know, don't do it just because you want to spite us. So we're not, no one, so just to make it clear, nobody, you know, we won't attack you if you're mainland Chinese, but obviously there must be a reason to why, you know, maybe you were trying to take off their mask or filming their faces, like on some of the more radical ones. So why, how can you expect someone to stay calm even if it's, even if you don't condone, like, violence? But yeah, so some Western media, um, it is very sympathetic, but for example, another BBC one, I remember seeing a interview between a reporter and a lawyer from Hong Kong, and at the very ultimate end, he was like, well, you know, China has all the power in the world, there's not really much you can do, and that was just a statement, it wasn't even a question, so it was just showing that, you know, he doesn't believe there is hope, and honestly, I'm pretty sure I can say this for all of us, but Maybe initially we thought there was hope, but now we're just, it's more of de- desperation. Uh, is there anything you think that the Western media, like she was saying, could do better? Or is there anything that you wish they would stop focusing on? Sometimes I, I just watch the video on YouTube, uh, BBC, and then like they just said about the protests in Hong Kong, and then the police attacked uh, Chinese diversity, and, and I watched that, and then like. Um, I think. The medias do not just focus on the image that is the protest fight with the police. Every action, the protester, they got reason. Some of the store and and some of the best from China. So, um, I think the medias should talk about why they do that because the protester not a criminal. 
they just want to fight for the democracy and doing the right thing. Yeah, I completely agree with what you said because the thing is, they it's not that these things don't happen, but usually there is a reason to it. Maybe it's not the most ethically justifiable reason, but there is usually a backstory to it. And that's why I would suggest if you could try to just watch the live streams. So on like Facebook, for example, there's always live streams from news media now in Hong Kong. The best way to be objective about it is to watch a live stream because a live stream, you can see everything that happens or maybe the cropped video that you saw came from a live stream. Try to find that live stream because that's the best way for you to objectively judge what was going on. We were actually talking just when we were setting, we were talking about being like young people from Hong Kong. You feel like there's almost a stereotype of the troublemaker and the rioter and things like that. So possibly the media are perpetuating that and focusing on that more than... Oh, yeah, our um, the politics. Uh, 100%. I also feel this, uh, it's not just um, on the protests, it's also in the police. That's why you do have to have sympathy for some of them. But, you know, if the actions are so repetitive, then there is a trend that needs to be investigated, and that's one of the demands. But um, you're absolutely right. Uh, the stereotype that has been created is obviously is from a negative perspective. We're just here fighting for the maintenance of what we were promised. And you're here calling us rioters because we want free will over our own choice. Even on, like, back home in Hong Kong, our TVs, like, the main news channel is TVB. Like, they already... That's why when TVB streams a live stream, I'll watch it. But if TVB does, you know, the recap part, I wouldn't watch it because it would just crop out, yeah. you know, all the backstory part that we were talking about. Mm, so that's when the bias happens, when the editing yeah, comes yeah. in. Mm. Media does like to yeah. just does like to pick and choose what they're what they're going to run with. Um, so just. Then, just bringing it back to Belfast, um, you're obviously all living and studying here. Belfast is described as a post-conflict um, area. Is there anything that you think that, from your perspective living here, could be brought back to Hong Kong? Obviously, the troubles was so is very... Maybe the goals were different, but the actual you know process of it is very similar to Hong Kong in many ways. We do have to be wary that maybe, you know, the point we would truly have no faith and the police to the point that, you know, our own very, very radical, like maybe the most radical protester who do the violent actions can become something similar to paramilitaries. The reason I say this is less likely is because in Hong Kong, we can't buy stuff like guns. We can't just, it's, weapons are not easily accessible except for maybe like a kitchen knife or something and we wouldn't be able to have like villages or some sort because you know how paramilitaries they have their own territory but we don't there's no way you could possibly do that there's like a police station around every single block when it came to northern ireland they had the abuse of police power they had the abuse of any power in general and from it they they knew at some point that they had to investigate into all of this and that's exactly what we want before it reaches to the point of the troubles where you know people were dying left and right the patent report as well was very key in reforming the police service and also their ethics and codes their rules of training i absolutely i would wish that we had like a patent report for hong kong at this point to everybody here uh what are your hopes for a resolution to all of this that's happening at the moment 
I feel like the police force needs to be reformed because right now um, they're doing a lot of things that you know provoke protesters or provoke Hong Kong citizens. So like if the police doesn't stop like killing or hurting um, innocent citizens, then like I feel like this situation won't be resolved very easily. Well, it takes an effort to like build up an investigation committee or something like that, but. Um, if it happens, it would be like the quickest and like the most straightforward way to solve this problem and to like make Hong Kong be at peace again and for Hong Kong citizens to like somehow trust the government a little bit more than compared to right now. Yeah, I think um, the resolution for this is is the five demands and then the government needs to do this because those five demands are, are just the basic things, I think. And then... Of course, the Im- most important thing is the last demand, which is the um, a tr- uh, democratic election. Mm, and universal then, suffrage, yeah. Yeah, because we have fighting for this for a long time. And then um, the Umbrella Revolution in 2014 is... Uh, we can't um, have a voltage for our, our head of our government. I think the, um, the protest will not be stopped because is the most important thing. Before before Hong Kong turned back to China, is Beijing promised United Kingdom that Hong Kong will be universal sovereign, but now we didn't. And also because now our leader, Carrie Lam, just need to serve Beijing so he can ignore Hong Kong people. So that's why we see um, the Hong Kong people try to peaceful protest and then fail and then become more and more violent. The leader is not serve the Hong Kong people and also the po- the violence of police. And uh, the police now, they just like um, a monster. They can, they can just arrest yeah, they any the people. Law. The next generation is the future of Hong Kong, so you can't do that. You know, in 1997, in the handover, the Sino-British Joint Declaration, it's both the British and Chinese government signed it and that created the one country, two systems and our basic law. And our basic law states that basically we have the autonomy in terms of legal, judicial, um, government and also that we would be promised universal suffrage. It's been who kn- like 20-something years now, is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's been 20-something years and you. it's still... <laughs> It just isn't happening. And one of the biggest misconceptions as well is that we vote for our chief executive. We don't, no. (laughs) The highest seat of chief executive can only be elected by popular vote after each each candidate is approved of by a majority of 1,200-member election committee. And this committee is criticized because the the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, has purposely put in major pro-Beijing figures. So it's never going to actually represent what the Hong Kong people want. It's representing what China government wants for Hong Kong. You're absolutely right as well about um, police brutality. There needs to be an investigation on them because, you know, just because you enforce the law doesn't mean you can abuse it. There was a case where a man was burned or something that by one individual, do not try to like, you know, stereotype it to all of us, but that one individual, I absolutely agree. He needs to be, you know, prosecuted and stuff because that is a criminal act. 
there was another policeman who um, he rode his motorcycle and he basically did a hit and run with protesters running away. But he's only been suspended. He's not charged for hit and run. The whole point of law is that it's equal to everybody. But that's why we're so stubborn in wanting a separate legal system. It's because the one in China, it's triggered so that it's in favor of whatever the Chinese Communist Party wants. We need universal suffrage because that's what's what people have been fighting for for so long, even in my parents' age. We need um, the independent investigation of inquiry into police um, actions is because clearly they are out of control. It needs to be investigated. It's not just a one-off. It's a pattern. It's a trend. And, you know, you just because you enforce the law doesn't mean you can abuse it. You need to be held accountable. We need um, justice for, you know, the prisoners who were sexually assaulted, who were raped. There are allegations that need to be taken seriously. If you want to call me a writer or a terrorist for the rest of your life in your history books, but our home gets universal suffrage, go ahead. to Law Pod. I've been Anushka Sayed. I'd just like to say a really special thanks to Professor Bryce Dixon, the QUB Hong Kong students, and also thank you so much to Kingsley and Neve, also part of the team. For more updates and more information, go to lawpod.org or you can see more episodes on iTunes. To stay up to date with us, you can check out the Twitter and a new Instagram coming soon. <laughs>